0: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Kittens and pandas and bears, oh my. Ransomware gets its skates on, but it still has loose idiomatic control. Sissa has some advice on email. While at home in pandemic lockdown, a lot of people, not you, are spending too much time on unedifying sites. Momentum Cyber looks at the state of the cybersecurity sector in 2020. The SignEt 16 have been announced. Chris Novak from Verizon on understanding the complexities of PFI breach investigations. Our guest is Steve Vince from Tenable on why CFOs should lean into cybersecurity issues. And finally, take a moment today to remember 9-11. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Summary for Friday, September 11th, 2020. Well, everybody, the bears are back, and so are the pandas and the kittens. Microsoft yesterday described evidence it's developed that indicate extensive Russian, Chinese, and Iranian efforts to penetrate or impede U.S. political campaigns. The target selection is about what one might expect, given the three governments' general policy objectives. Tehran really doesn't like President Trump. At all. The Iranian group Phosphorus, Microsoft uses elemental names for threat actors, Others call this one APT35 or Charming Kitten, is hitting personal accounts of people associated with President Trump's campaign. Beijing, on the other hand, seems interested in former Vice President Biden's campaign for the presidency. It also wants to keep a close eye on the U.S. foreign policy establishment, probably because of the extent to which American sanctions against and wolfing in the direction of Chinese companies have become a thorn in the panda's paws. The Chinese group Zirconium, APT-31, or Hurricane Panda, is most interested in high-profile individuals associated with the election, including some having to do with the Biden campaign, as well as prominent leaders in the international affairs community. Moscow is looking for opportunistic trouble. Russia's Strontium, APT-28, the GRU's very own fancy bear, has bipartisan interests and has gone after more than 200 targets. Their list runs to campaigns, consultants, political parties, and advocacy groups. Most of the attacks the groups mounted, Microsoft says, were unsuccessful. But as Han Solo would say, don't get cocky, kid. The activities Microsoft describes seem to involve intelligence collection and battle space preparation for influence operations. There are, however, more direct threats to voting. Since elections depend upon the high availability of voting systems and databases, the publication Governing sees the tendency toward widespread criminal use of ransomware as a problem for election officials. Whether the threat is ransomware or the campaigns Microsoft described in its own warning, much of that threat is email born The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday offered advice to all election-related entities— on steps they might take to counter email-based attacks. CISA says, quote, Email systems are the preferred vector for initiating malicious cyber operations. Recent reporting shows 32% of breaches involving phishing attacks and 78% of cyber espionage incidents are enabled by phishing, End quote. For present purposes, CISA divides email attacks into two general categories, phishing and credential stuffing. Their general advice is directed at election officials and the IT people who support them, but it's generally applicable to any organization that uses email. They include, if you're using cloud email, use the protections your cloud provider offers, secure the user accounts on high-value services, use email authentication and other best practices, and if you're running your own email gateway, secure it. Speaking of ransomware, as we heard yesterday... Data center provider Equinix was hit with NetWalker over the Labor Day weekend. Bleeping Computer reports that the attackers demanded some $4.5 million in ransom in exchange for a decryptor and a promise not to release stolen information. Payment, of course, is demanded in Bitcoin. The hoods want Equinix to understand what they've taken, and so took what Bleeping Computer describes as the unusual step of sending a screenshot of stolen data to their victim. Their ransom note stylistically represents a sample of low-grade shadow broker ease. Quote, Look at this screenshot. If you not contact us, we will publish your data to public access. You can take a look at our blog. You have three days to contact us, or we will make post in our blog. Contact all possible news sites and tell them about data breach. Yowza. It's all caps in the original, probably more because the cyber goons are too lazy to use a shift key than for the typographical effect of shouting that caps-locked text conveys. Equinix's blog, updated yesterday, has nothing new to report. They're continuing to serve their data center clients, and investigation remains in progress. Late this morning, Momentum Cyber released its cybersecurity market review for the first half of 2020. As one might expect, it represents a tale of two quarters, with swift growth in the first quarter and pandemic-driven retrenchment in the second. That second quarter, however, also saw a tremendous increase in organizations' attack surfaces that has built up a considerable demand for cybersecurity services and solutions that should provide large opportunities for companies in the sector as their customers emerge from their present state of fiscal caution. We'll have more on Momentum's Cyber Market Review next week. A study of user behavior Netscope released yesterday offers a glimpse into how remote work and the blurring of the lines between home and office have increased enterprise risk. There's the expanded attack surface, to be sure, but there's also the matter of people's behavior online. It's not good, and a lot of people really ought to be ashamed of themselves. Not you, of course. We mean other people. Those other people are spending a lot more time thrashing around in eight categories of risky sites Netscope identifies. We won't name them all for reasons of decency and the sort of search engine optimization a family show like ours wants, but the biggest leaders were gambling and adult content other. And visits to adult content, not other, what we'll call saucy pictures and videos, have increased sixfold over the course of the pandemic. We're pretty sure that the activities of China's ambassador to the court of St. James can't account for all of that, and so some people should be ashamed. Not you, of course, those other people. With its annual recognition of innovative cybersecurity firms coming up at the beginning of November, Cynet has released the names of the finalists, its annual Cynet 16. The firms recognized this year include Alcid, Axonius, Beyond Identity, Bolster, CypherTrace, CloudNox, Cycognito, KeyFactor, Medigate, Orca Security, Order, ReFirm Labs, Salt, Secure Code Warrior, Shift Left, and StackRox. Congratulations and best of luck to all the finalists. And finally, today is the 19th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks that took so many lives in New York, Arlington, and Shanksville. Pause for a moment and spare a thought for victims of terrorism and for those they left behind. We remember, too, the many acts of sacrifice, valor, and compassion that followed in terror's train. so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit sixsense.com. There's that old saying that much of what's done in the world is done for love or money. And it's fair to say that cyber criminals targeting businesses are focused on the money side of that particular phrase. The CyberWire's chief security officer and chief analyst Rick Howard spoke with Steve Vince, chief financial officer of Tenable, on why CFOs should lean in to cybersecurity issues. You
1: know, in terms of in, in terms of the essay that I wrote that appeared in CFO magazine in Australia. We talked a lot about the maturation of the role of the chief security officer, and the chief information security officer, and how the security team uh, needs to evolve their strategy and become better partners with the C-suite. Uh, in turn, uh, I believe the C-suite needs to also evolve and recognize the value and the contributions of the chief security officer is an important executive on the team and i believe there's a disconnect in how businesses understand and manage security risk
2: well i totally agree and i and i've been part of that problem myself in my former cso roles right that my peers and i have always had trouble conveying uh cyber or transforming cyber risk into business risk we we just didn't have the language to do it and i was wondering if the CFOs of the world could help us figure that out.
1: Well, I, I think we need to, I think it's, it's important. If you th- think about it, um, cyber security threats, you know, are thriving amidst the climate of uncertainty, making it a topic certainly worthy of board level visibility. This move to work from anywhere, you know, digital transformation was well underway and it was a major secular change in the industry. But COVID has probably catapulted digital transformation 10, 15 years into the future. And so with that comes a whole host of problems. The compute changing, the attack surface is expanding as companies undergo digital transformation, malicious activities on the rise. There's uh, more sophisticated bad actors and there's an increasingly complex threat environment. And all this creates the perfect storm, if you will. For cyber, cyber threats, in terms of business leaders, you know, what I can tell you is business leaders want a clear picture of their organization's cybersecurity posture, but their security counterparts struggle to, to, to provide one. And so as a CFO, the organization's risk profile is something that's important to me. Um, I report to the CFO, but I spend a lot of time with the audit committee and the audit committee often for companies of our size has the defect. Uh, responsibility for, for risk and it's a simple question how secure are we but the answer is seemingly complex and as I thought about that you know the, what I realized is that most every major functional department within the enterprise has a common language that's universally understood throughout the organization. And so when we look at security, I think the problem today, given all of this that we just talked about, is that there's no common language. When you pose that question, how secure are we, you don't get typically get an answer uh, that's based on the maturity framework of an organization and a couple of key metrics, and there's not a clear articulation of that.
2: And, well, I would and, I would pose to you that that's the wrong question, all right, or at least a hard question to answer. The real question that CISO should be answering to people like you, the CFO, is what's the probability that we are going to be materially impacted by a cybersecurity event in say the next three years? I think that's an answerable question. Now, I don't. know, What do you think about that,
1: Rick? I I I agree with where you're coming from because you cannot. I, I'm not proposing that you. You can eliminate security risk. By the way, I'm the CFO. I'll stay in the shallow and shallow end of the pool when it comes <laughs> to technical matters on security. Uh, but but I, I but I do think uh, that I understand you know business risk, and you you can't. The only thing you can do, I believe, is do a series of things that reduces risk to a relatively acceptable level, and so um, and often CFOs are on the sidelines as a passive observer of security. And one of the things I've learned since I've been at Tenable, I've been here for five and a half years. And while I have, you know, I've worked with technology growth companies most of my career in the past 30 years, I'm a bit of a neophyte when it comes to security. You know, I've just, I've spent the last five years in security. I've learned a lot about it. And one of the things I'm encouraging my CFO counterparts and and really the rest of the C-suite It's to take an active role. I think CFOs have a responsibility to ensure security teams are resourced, understand, you know, the struggles within those departments and become better partners. You know, people like me who who don't speak the technical language um, and and other executives will look at things like maturity frameworks. You you know this better than anyone, but you can pick one. It could be NIST. It can be SOC 2. It can be ISO 27001. Um, and then the other next logical question is like, what's the effect of this, of that? And I, I don't think there's a, a clear articulation. I think we're becoming better as an organization. I think boards are becoming better, but I think there's, there's, there's a long ways to go in that regard.
0: That's our own Rick Howard speaking with Steve Vince from Tenable. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Chris Novak. He's the director of the Verizon Threat Research Advisory Center. Uh, Chris, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch on some of the complexities that you and your team uh, track when it comes to certain breach
3: investigations.
0: What sort of things can you share with us today?
3: Yeah, sure. I'd say uh, probably the area that sometimes is uh, a bit new and different for organizations is the realm of PFI or uh, payment card industry, forensic investigations. You know, a lot of organizations tend to look at the incident response world in a purely technical perspective. But obviously, as I think people are kind of growing to become more familiar with, there's a lot more laws and regulations that dictate how a number of those things really need to take place. And, and PFIs are sometimes uh, a type of investigation that can can get organizations a little tangled up if if they don't quite know what they're doing. Hmm. Well, walk us through, what does an investigation look like? Sure, yeah. So typically, many PFI investigations are actually not discovered by the victims themselves. So if you're a, a merchant, for example, or an e-commerce shop, you obviously deal with credit cards in order for you know your customers to make purchases. And in many cases, the way that someone may identify the fact that you've had a breach is typically that, you know, think about it. If you've ever gotten a credit card statement and you noticed a charge— that you didn't make, Mm. and you call up your credit card company and say, this wasn't me. They say, okay, no problem. We'll take care of it. Well, what happens behind the scenes that a lot of people don't realize is they amass all the data on all those charges that people called in and said, this wasn't me. And they start doing analytics across all of those fraudulent charges to try to identify something that they refer to in the industry as a common point of purchase or a CPP, And once they've identified that, kind of think of that as these are the only things in common across all these fraudulent transactions. Usually what happens is it triangulates and points back to a specific merchant, maybe an e-commerce shop, maybe brick and mortar. It could be any kind of organization. And in some cases, what's surprising to many is that they can typically come to that analysis with a very small number of transactions. It may only take three, four, five. Now, they may also amass thousands of fraudulent transactions, and that only makes their triangulation easier. Uh, but sometimes organizations will, will push back because they'll go, ah, oh, it's only two or three transactions. I do, you know, 100 transactions, 1,000 transactions a day. What's a couple you know, fraudulent transactions? How does that identify that I've had any kind of breach? And so that's usually one of the first stumbling points that, that organizations will face is that pushback and that uh, denial that uh, it, it can't be right. It can't be them. Hmm. You know, I'm imagining
0: uh, you standing in front of a big bulletin board with uh, three by five cards and and strings of yarn with tacks, you know, collect, connecting all the different points right. together. I, I suspect it's probably a bit more complex and automated than that. Um, but when it comes to making these connections, you know, behind the scenes... When the connections are made, do, do do the credit card companies, is it a matter of going after the people who are doing this or or shutting them down? In other words, do we inform law enforcement? Do we try to cut them off so they can't do it anymore? What's the spectrum of responses?
3: Yeah, so it can be varied. It depends typically on the, the size and scope of the losses that they're seeing. But usually the first step that they'll do is they'll usually reach out when that triangulation has pointed to Merchant ABC, for example, They will typically reach out to a merchant ABC's bank and say, hey, this is what the triangulation has pointed to. We'd like to get in contact with your merchant to see whether or not they know what's going on and maybe conduct a PFI investigation to figure out if they've had a breach and if so, what what the scope of it is. And that would typically be the first foray into the incident response and investigative side of things. And then typically as an offshoot of the investigation you know in the course of our work if we find that hey we can actually identify who may be behind this or you know we can link it to other cases that we may be working much like you would see in a typical law enforcement investigation you know we we see a common fingerprint ac- across 10 or 20 cases we may actually be able to tie this breach back to a, a potential threat actor and when we have the opportunity to do things like that you know, quite often the, the merchant, the bank, the credit card companies will often, you know, I- encourage the, the possibility of actually working with law enforcement to see what we could do in terms of actually prosecuting that. And, you know, to be honest, the, the success rate of that has only gotten better over the years. Hmm. So it really sounds like it's a collaborative process when you get to that point. Yeah, I would I would say it absolutely is and you know I-, I would I would say that the other thing that a lot of organizations struggle with there in terms of understanding even how to start that process and who to collaborate with is how they even find PFIs because that's one area where it's a I'd say it's a rather specialized area of incident response and investigations because the investigative team needs to actually understand how the payment card process works. A lot of times, you know people will take for granted that when they they swipe or or dip or tap their card, that transaction data may hop through ten or twenty different points across the world and back in in a split second in order to get your transaction approved. And yeah. when you do the investigation, you kind of need to understand how all those linkages work so that you can investigate and figure out where along those chains, might that problem actually be so? Many uh, many of the organizations that actually work in that industry are actually known as PFIs and, and certified accordingly, and so it's important that when organizations suffer, you know, from a potential breach of a credit card or debit card kind of situation, that you know they know what to look for when they're when they're looking at PFIs to, to pick from.
0: All right. Well, Chris Novak, uh, interesting insights, of course. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. No assembly required. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too be sure to check out this weekend's research Saturday and my conversation with John Dimaggio from Symantec We'll be talking about Sodino Kibi that's research Saturday check it out. The cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies.
2: To share your feedback now.
0: And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cybercriminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up.